Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, 20 years ago, her film Kissing Jessica Stein burst onto the indie film scene, and it has been enchanting, charming, inspiring, beckoning young people to come to New York and start to live out their dream. It is a remarkable story how that film got made. And her singular career is just a fascinating, fascinating story to listen to. I am so honored and thrilled to share Jennifer Westfeld on the podcast today. Welcome, Jennifer. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is the Tony-nominated actress and award-winning filmmaker Jennifer Westfeld. Jennifer is perhaps best known for writing, producing, and starring in the indie films Kissing Jessica Stein, Ira and Abby, and Friends with Kids, which also marked her directorial debut. Her television credits, some of her television credits include Younger, This Is Us, Girls, 24, Grey's Anatomy, Private Practice, Notes from the Underbelly, Children's Hospital, Two Guys, A Girl, and A Pizza Place, and many others. 
Ms. Westfeld made her Broadway debut opposite the delicious Donna Murphy in Wonderful Town. <clears throat> Some of her other notable stage work includes the world premieres of The Library, The Explorers Club, Too Much Sun, Finks, A Lifetime Burning, and Big Sky. Currently, and when I say currently, I mean I saw it last night, she is starring in a play called The Get at Rattlestick Theatre Company in New York City. I am over the moon to welcome Jennifer Westfeld to the podcast. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. It's so nice to be here finally. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun. You know, when I have friends on the show, in some ways it's the most challenging because I just want to like sit there and tell everyone like, this is my sister. She's amazing. This is why you <laughs> should love her. But it was so thrilling to kind of go back and even just watching clips again of you and Donna singing, you know, from Wonderful Town together or like other interviews you've done when your films were just coming on the scene and remembering um, and hearkening back to sort of your origin story. And the thing that makes me laugh the most is I don't think anyone had more jobs at once than you <laughs> when you first came to New York. So I thought like we could even just start there, like before all the magic began in terms of everyone sort of feeling like they were getting to know you through your work. You came to New York after Yale to be an actress in earnest. And I kind of want to start there because people can Google like where you grew up and how many shows you did as a kid. And <laughs> you and Amy Wilson went to college, uh, to, to elementary school together and all that. But like you get to New York, like, day, like how do you end up living where you live? How did you get all these jobs? Like, where did you begin? Okay, first, I just want to say what's funny about you mentioning Amy Wilson. I had an Amy Wilson friend from Guilford growing up and then a different Amy Wilson friend at Yale. So that's a little known fact to start to-, to... So the Amy Wilson I did the last night of Ballyhoo with was not the same Amy Wilson that you did like Godspell with as a young That's girl? That's exactly right. Two different Amy Wilsons, one from elementary, middle school and one from college. So yeah, so I have two Amy Wilson friends who are fellow actress- artist types in my life um, and not the one you know. So hilarious, right? There you go. Now I have to start this whole interview. Hey, everyone, my guest today. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. to answer your question. Yeah, yes. I, can't, I always wanted to live in New York. I always wanted to just be on Broadway. That was my dream. That was the extent of it. That was my dream since the very beginning. And um, and I came here and, you know, started waitressing <laughs> and yeah. auditioning for theater and um I basically did uh, a ton of plays, both regionally and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. And I always had, like you say, three or four jobs to kind of make it all work. Um, I worked in restaurants. I worked as my second film premise might um, tip you off to. I worked at the gym selling memberships, but poorly. I never really sold them. <laughs> um, I worked as a paralegal. I worked... Um, Gosh, I I worked for Tova Feltu, filling filling in for Amy Wilson, who was Tova's personal assistant. Um, what else did I do? I'm trying to think. Um, well, that's a good list to start us off. But yeah, I did um, I did a bunch of plays all over and um, and in New York, and um, just tried to make ends meet. And I really just um, chipped away at trying to. 
um, get better roles and better gigs uh, off Broadway regionally and sort of build that resume just like everyone else does and took acting class and voice lessons and all the rest of it. So when you got here, did you sort of have a community already in place because you had gone to Yale, which isn't that far from New York? And are you sort of beginning your life here with friends from there? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely a lot of people were trying to make it as artists. In fact, um, a few of us, uh, including Amy Wilson, you're Amy Wilson, um, we did um, a sketch comedy troupe for um, a year or two, and it was called Neurotica. <laughs> and, um, or no, maybe that was the name of the one of the shows. And I think somehow Back in Five was the name of the troupe. I'm not sure which is which. One was the name of one of the shows. And anyway, we wrote sketches and would put up these nights of sketches with Mike Zimmer and Benji Feldman, who you know, and Amy Wilson. Um, so we we had a great time doing that. And uh, uh, Brendan Brown was in it. Gosh. And then there were some different people who came and went. Anyway. Um, we did that. I also did, um, you know, my friend Kuzi Kram, uh, who I met in acting class. We actually put on these nights of, um, they were anything that was like a short piece. Um, so it was a night of short pieces and it would be either um, a scene from somebody's play in progress or a sketch, a comedic sketch or any piece of uh, an original work that was um, in the process of being made. And we called that go to pieces as, as a directive. Um, this is so dopey when thinking about all, all of our little first um, entrepreneurial efforts uh, to get art out there in some way. But to answer your question, yeah, there was definitely a community of people. So I guess um, those early days, in addition to like going to the Rep Theater of St. Louis or the Bristol Riverside Theater, you know, right. <laughs> was also about um, whenever there was downtime and and I wasn't working as an actor, um, there were these other outlets. There was always, I guess, something brewing that was just like rent a tiny theater and, you know, roll up your sleeves and get to it. I know, but I feel like it speaks to, you know, as someone who knows you intimately, I know that it it is like this conundrum that you are one of the best writers I know and someone who loathes writing more than anyone I know, sort of <laughs> equal, like it's just this ridiculous talent that makes you bonkers um, because you're such a community person. And we've sort of talked about how writing is such a kind of can be a very isolating experience and you're so interested in building a, a piece of art with community but I love and I sort of never knew this like how much even in like small bits and pieces you were starting to use writing as a way to create your own work if you weren't being hired to do stuff and so it makes sense that eventually a long form piece would come out of all of these little bits and bobs that you were making <laughs> I want to know um because I met you when you were already doing Kissing Jessica, Kissing Jessica Stein. I came in when you were actually reshooting the ending of the film. So it That's had right. already had its entire life. But I think of you so much as a New York person. Before we get to celebrating like 20 years of the making and release of Kissing Jessica Stein, which was in part of why I wanted to have you now, because it's such a like incredible anniversary of this work that everywhere I go with you from like a bank 
to a restaurant, someone comes up to you and talks about how meaningful that film is to them and remarkable because it was 20 years ago, right? Yeah, that it like landed on the scene. It is a long time and it really, it has really touched like multiple, you know, like two decades of people now, right? But how did you, my like most New Yorker, centric friend even get to LA for the first time which ended up getting you a pilot and this whole other thing before you came back to New York like how did yeah, you go from here I, to there I, I had such a roundabout journey I mean as I said since the fourth grade all I ever wanted to do was be on stage and be in plays and musicals and you know play all the great parts and all that jazz that was always um my goal. And I really never thought about acting on camera. I don't know why. I, I never really, I just, that wasn't my goal and it wasn't my world. And I don't think I thought I could do it or I, I, I didn't even, it just wasn't really part of my story, you know, <laughs> for whatever reason. And um, in 1997, I went out to visit a good friend of mine from Yale who had just burst onto the scene um, in movies and made a huge, enormous splash. And that was um, Ed Norton. And I went to just visit him. And I was about to go start a job at the George Street Playhouse. It was um, a version of Huck Finn <laughs> or Tom Sawyer. It was one of the two. Anyway, um, I was excited for my gig. And so I thought it was a good time to like go out for a week because I then I was going to go to work. And so um so I visited with him and we were sort of just celebrating his amazing um, success and his uh, managers happened to send me on a couple of auditions while I was there. Just, they were just like, Hey, you should meet this person. I'm like, okay, wh whatever. I mean, I was just like visiting, just happy to be there. And, um, and another friend of mine from the theater uh, introduced me to an agent friend of hers at UTA. And um, so I just had these, two people um, who were friends who just kind of were incredibly generous with their contacts. And um, very weirdly, and I've never had anything like this happen before or since, but I got to the end on the movie, I booked a pilot that ended up going to series and I had UTA sign me. And it was just, it was one of the weirdest, it's the luckiest for by far and away, the luckiest career thing that's really ever happened to me. And um, I don't even understand it. And maybe there's something about when you don't think you're suited. I mean, it's funny when I was um, thinking about talking with you and going back in time a little bit, because I, I knew that you didn't know me in my early, you know, waitressing, hostessing, schlepping, you know, years. Um, I... I was thinking about the camera thing and I remember my agent at the time, and these are just the moments that, you know, all of the moments along the way where either people say something so encouraging that gives you inspiration or people knock you down and shut you down. And, and there are all of these like sliding doors moments. Um, and I guess now that I'm thinking of it, I, I had an agent at the time I was doing theater um, and I, I was in Win Handman's class with Julie Lauren, who, you know, um, who's become such a nearest and dearest friend. Um, and I remember Julie Lauren was saying, you know, I'm going out to LA for pilot season. And I was like, I don't know what pilot season is. What's a pilot, you know? And she was like, oh, you should ask about this. I'm right for this. And I also had a dear friend from um, 
college years because I had done a, a Shakespeare program in London with that's where I met Haley, my dear friend Haley, who um, at that time was like a soap star because she was a, a teenage soap star. So like, I was like, how do you get an agent? And she was like making all this cash on the, on a television show, you know, when she was 18. And I was like, wow, you're amazing. And whenever people I met would tell me, oh, you should ask about this or that job that's on camera. I would sort of gently ask, oh, I heard maybe I'm right for this. And I'll never forget that this, she will remain nameless, but this agent said, oh, Jennifer, we can't, um, send you out for camera work because of the weight problem. And I, I just remember so distinctly having no idea that I had a weight problem and not thinking that I did. And, and I remember just feeling like my whole face flushed red. And I was like, Oh, uh, okay. And, and it's, it's funny. There, there have been a few moments like that in my career where you think about, how your whole self-perception changes just based on like one comment from someone. And, and that was one of those moments and, and getting back to Ed in LA and the lucky, lucky, um, crazy fortune of booking this pilot, which was two girls, a guy and a pizza place, um, which was also Ryan Reynolds first show. Um, I remember at the upfronts when it went to series, running into that agent <laughs> and I was thinking like what are the odds that like the New York theater agent would be totally dismissive and and reductive and and kind of um you know have give you body dysmorphia when the Hollywood slicksters or what we thought of would be like it was just such an opposite world for me um yeah, the fact insane. that I was embraced in Hollywood of all places. Like when yeah. I didn't even think, like, I thought maybe I, I don't know, like I was a misfit or something. I don't know, you know? And it was, um, it was strange to find easy success or, or some, um, acceptance so quickly in a world I had never thought about for myself or, or pursued or dreamt of. And, um, and the story about how that led to Jessica Stein is that, Again, because I didn't have any plans to be in LA, I had this job that would last a week and then probably go nowhere because that's what most pilots, you know, I think the average is just so low of a pilot going to series. Um, so when it got picked up, I was shocked and we were supposed to start in August. Um, and then I remember it got pushed to mid season and that meant that I suddenly had two months or yeah, about two months free. And I didn't know anyone in LA. I knew Ed and like one other person. And I lived in, um, I was living in an apartment with like rented furniture. <laughs> like it was really not like, I, I was such a New Yorker as you pointed out. And so I just remember telling these new fancy agents, I was like, I gotta get back to New York. I can't just sit around like twiddling my thumbs for eight weeks in this city that is depressing and I don't know anyone. <laughs> and um, and I remember Heather Jurgensen, I had met the year before. We had both done this five-day workshop in the Catskills, which was through Ensemble Studio Theater. And it was something for writers, directors, and actors. And during the five days, you had to do something that was out of your comfort zone. So if you were an actor, you had to write something or direct something. If you were a director, you had to act in something. 
And it just was just one time in the five days you had to do something that was not your thing. And um, I thought that was so neat. But then I realized on the fifth day, I hadn't done anything. I was like, oh no, I'm out of time. Like this is the last day. And so I'll never forget that at the lunch in the cafeteria, I took a napkin and I scribbled like a sketch, like a comedic scene, um, which became this Jessica Stein scene that's actually it's in the deleted scenes of the DVD word for word and I've been told that um some people have used it as their like monologue to audition for drama school but that's that was the first bit of writing um that um led me and Heather to clock one another because she also had written sort of a terrible date scene which my scene was as well right. and so at the time we we clocked each other and we were like wow you know we've got two vignettes maybe we could get eight and put on a night of like monster like nightmare dates as a like evening of some fun sketch comedy evening sometime and we kind of exchanged numbers but that was the extent of it like we barely you know that was like hey someday let's do a let's rent a theater and put on a piece and not unlike, you know, what Kuzi and I did with the short pieces back in the day. And um, Heather had kind of kept in touch with me over that one year to sort of um, ask about agents and different things because she was still temping at an advertising agency and like breaking in and deciding she wanted to try it for real finally. Um, and so, you know, we would talk now and again, but again, barely knew each other. And when I got this two month reprieve from the show being in August to the show starting two months later, I called her and said, hey, remember me? Like I've got seven and a half weeks off. And what if we just rent a theater and do that night of sketches about the bad dates and we'll get a group of actors and wouldn't that be fun? And so that's what we did. And we got a group of hilarious actors, including Tom Bolster and Kuzi Krem and Chris Berger and all of these fun people. And Robert Davenport, who was a, a colleague from Yale, was the director. And um, we started writing sketches. And slowly in this process, there was this one sketch um, about these two Laura Ashley clad girly girls in a day spot getting pedicures, like negotiating in earnest how to become lesbians because they were having such a terrible time on their dates. Um, and just thought, wouldn't it be so much more pleasant to date each other? And again, a super broad sketch. It was not at all um, thoughtful. And in today's standards, it would be crass and you know unfit um, for any kind of consumption. But um, some of the dialogue that is in Kissing Jessica Sign in the pam pamphlet scene where Jessica and Helen are kind of um, trying to figure out how to make this work was from that original sketch. And that original sketch led to this sort of narrative arc forming and the night of sketches turning into like a quasi play that was sort of in its nascent stages, but nonetheless a play, like a narrative, rather than just a night of bad dates. Um, these two women were going on these terrible dates and then they had this eureka moment and then the second act became about them trying to um, have a relationship and them falling in love with one another. So it was very bare bones and really, um, I guess, innocent and very um, unsophisticated in certain ways, but the ideas were um, interesting to us. And I think there was a freshness to 
the writing or, you know, um, maybe because we wrote it so quickly, I don't know. Um, and it ran for three nights and we, um, we did it for three nights. Oh, and John was in that as well. Um, uh, him and, um, we were still just friends at that time. And, um, so all of these people, many of whom ended up in the movie, um, as you did, uh, were in that original piece. And, um, we, we ran it for three nights. I, we all said goodbye. Like that was super fun. Thank you. Mission accomplished. I had a creative seven weeks and now I'm going to do this sitcom and got back on a Sunday night to LA, started work on Monday on the show. And my fancy new agents called and said, all of these studios are calling to option your play and make it into a movie. And I was like, that's impossible. Only our friends and family came <laughs> literally only our friends and family. It was right. in the base. It was in the basement of a church. It was like the basement of a church that also housed like a doggy obedience class at the same time. And like a 12 step meeting. And like, oh I mean, God. it was definitely like, you know, it was not some glamorous outing. It was, it, right. it was a lovely little space, but it was definitely like, Joe sent me and knock three times and go and take a take a left after the you know third, just like prohibition days and it's yes a, a little wait, bit. So you had not invite. I mean, you were like not no, calling nobody. producers to come. No, the okay, only, so you the get only this person call. in yeah. my professional life came was my junior agent came, right? Kay, Kay Popovsky Kramer and um, Randy Stone, who is no longer with us. He was, um, one of the executives at 20th century TV. He also notably, um, developed and produced, uh, Trevor, the short that won the Oscar that led to the Trevor yeah. project, which is such wow. an un unbelievable organization. And he was a very early champion of mine in LA. And he just very impulsively got on a plane to come see this play of mine. I, because we had connected during the filming of the pilot and he was a fan and, um, and he was a new person in my life. And between him and my junior agent, I don't really believe that anyone else from Hollywood came to this tiny play. Next to start to the, the bidding war. Next right? to the puppy training class. I really don't <laughs> think so, but I think possibly just those two voices kind of speaking about it, like led to the wildfire of like, oh my God, you got to get your hands on this property, even though it wasn't even a property of any kind. And somehow, like as only LA people can, like somehow they got a copy of our play, which I, we did not give to anyone. So it was, it was a very strange thing that suddenly Heather was coming out, sleeping on my sofa and we were taking all of these meetings with oh all of these God. fancy people who had read our very um, bare bones sort of draft of a quasi play. All the napkins know? that you had written the play on. Exactly. They like, had assembled right. them in order. They had photocopied all of the napkins and we didn't even know how they got it. And suddenly we were meeting with all of these studios and we ended up signing with a studio attached to Starnet ourselves, which was a real coup at the time. And thinking, wow, well, here we go. And suddenly Heather was sort of um, staying with me and we were starting, like we downloaded final draft software and we were like, what is a slug line? <laughs> Interior, blah, blah, blah. and we just started writing. And that turned into almost two years of development hell, which is sort of a cliche, but um, it took us forever to hire a director. We finally did. We hired Saul Rubinek, who was incredible to work with during the development of the writing. He was so smart and so talented. And so 
such a good collaborator with us as writers. And we would do these like fully formed readings um, and we would invite like 50 people, like a play, like right back to the, you know, put on a play of it all to get feedback and feel what was working and what wasn't. So it was a very um, theater approach or, you know, a New York stage and film approach to yeah. the process. It was- Which um, you still do. I mean, that's still so- That is my process. Workshop your, yeah. your film scripts. That's amazing. So yeah, tons of actors. And then the depressing thing about the studio was that um, three different times during our process, the studio got bought and sold by- and suddenly we had different bosses. So it got to be so chaotic. Like we started out working for Radar Pictures and then it was Gramercy Pictures and then it became USA Films. And there were all of these um, different iterations. And at a certain point, Heather and I were looking at each other and we were like, are we ever going to make this movie? Like, I don't even know who we work for anymore. <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone even likes us. Like, what you know, is this going to just go the way of like, the dodo and, and be shelved and never come to fruition. And at that point, when you've worked on something for a while, like you're just like, just somebody get a video camera, let's do anything with it. You know what I mean? And that's when we started campaigning to get the rights back to make it independently. And that's when um, I reached out to Eden Wormfeld, who was the best friend from high school of a dear friend of mine from college, um, Rako Hillier. And uh, Eden had just made Swingers with her cousin, Doug Lyman. And that was such a wonderful success story. And she was in um, the throes of finishing a book, which was a really amazing book for um, would-be and wannabe independent filmmakers. It was sort of like a how-to make a small independent film. And she and a collaborator of hers, whose name I'm forgetting, um, released that book right around when I reconnected with Eden, who right. I had met when I was in college through Reiko. And um, she really became pivotal in helping us try and figure out could we do this? And how could we do this? And how would we raise the money? And how could we put it together? And we kept going with our crazy process of raising the money share by share with friends and family. And then back to Julie Lauren, all roads to Julie Lauren, um, all roads lead to, I should say, um, she brought her friend Brad Zions to one of the readings we would do these readings and then we would sort of pitch like you know getting involved and like people would bring people they knew who had some money and friends of ours would just like buy one share and anyway brad ended up being this um angel producer investor person who um committed half of the budget and then we raised the rest of it share by share so our smallest share was twenty five hundred dollars <laughs> and so like a lot of friends in our lives, like actor friends would get like a national commercial and buy like one share in our movie. And, and it was so moving, right? Like, yeah. because people just kind of, it was such a like garage theater. It's beautiful. Like yeah. let's, let's put on a play and, right. and our, our family members, our friends, um, ourselves, like we all um, invested shares as well, you know, whatever we could manage. And then friends and family members, uh, donated locations to the project, like Haley, who I mentioned, it was her apartment that we shot Jessica's apartment in, and Heather's um, aunt and uncle, we shot um, Carson and Michael Mastro, you know, um, 
Sebastian and um I can't believe I'm forgetting all the names of the characters <laughs> okay it was 20 years ago by the way and you've written you know three or four films since then so we'll forgive you and, and true and true fans of the movie will remember I know but it's all so, good but really like we pieced it together like everything every location you know we shot all of Scarsdale Shabbos dinner in Scarsdale we shot at my my parents, my mom and stepdad's friends in Guilford, Connecticut. And, and then people housed, like my family's friends housed all the actors. Like it was really, um, it was such a team effort and it was such a group effort. And of course, Charlie, who was our director is um, Eden's brother. And, you know, I mean, so every single piece of the puzzle was just like kids, you know, bring whatever you can like if anyone you know can invest a share or donate a location or show up and be an extra I remember all of our friends and family were extras in the wedding scene my including my mother <laughs> we were just like come be part of our movie and um you know it was such an exciting time to shoot in New York because at that time you could really get away with like stealing shots and we would just hold up a sign saying you are about to be part of a movie, you know, and you are signing away your rights and blah, 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 blah. And that was like a legitimate way to have background people. Those were the waivers. Right. Cause it was such a low budget, you know? And so we were, you know, when I'm dodging, trying to get a cab, like I'm really just trying to get a cab, like, you know, <laughs> and, and we're stealing magic hour and we're stealing the light and we're stealing you know, passerbys and all that stuff. And it was such a fun um, way to work. You know, it was such a neat way to work and to capture New York. And, yeah, you know, um, I look around, I do like my five mile power walk slash jog in the park every day, or I try to. And in this beautiful weather, like this was the weather for all of my movies. You know what I mean? That, uh, well, Friends with Kids was really so wintry but we did get one day of beautiful fall for the Megan Adams scene in the park but um anyway it just brings back so many memories of all of those stolen shots at the reservoir and you know um how we would just run and gun it and be like Larry's got a camera you know he's holding it and we're just gonna see what we get you know but it really was like there's magic within you know the cast you know Tova felt she was just on the podcast and she was telling me how she got to know Barbara Streisand because Barbara saw that film somehow and was like, I have to talk to you about the mother daughter scene. Like it really, it really touched a lot of people in all different ways. You make the movie. And when did you kind of realize like, Hey gang, we're onto something like, guess I what? Think... Not just my mom likes it. Like everybody <laughs> likes it. No, you know, we didn't know. I, I feel like we, um, we were accepted to the Los Angeles film festival and like they had been looking for like their comedy for whatever reason. And we were sort of a late, I remember we were a late um, entry. Like we applied late, you know, cause I think we were racing to finish. You're the like, move. hang on, we're almost, okay, the That's end. That's what it okay. is, yeah. Really? Like we weren't, I don't even think we were necessarily done with the edit or the post or anything like that. We gave them like a rough cut or we invited them to the edit. I can't even remember what happened, but we were, we were not yet finished and they had been looking for a comedy I think for their slate. So that's why we still had a shot and, um, and they liked it. And we 
sold our movie to Fox Searchlight out of the Los Angeles Film Festival. And we won some awards there. We won the audience award and they created an award for me and Heather for writing and acting. It was very, Don Cheadle presented it to us at the award ceremony. It was very starry for us. We were like smitten and excited. And, you know, we felt like, OMG, like Don Cheadle's giving us a little, you know, it was like this small, it was like beautiful, but um, it was very exciting. And, um, and, you know, Fox Searchlight, I can't imagine a better home for this movie they still and all like make movies I so admire and and they know exactly how to um they're like miracle you know distributors for indie films they do such an incredible incredible job so we really hit pay dirt and we didn't even know like we didn't know anything and um and another moment that was like we were expecting like go back and reshoot half of it, or I don't know, like make it fancier. I, I, we didn't know what to expect, you know, because again, we just had finished this thing and um, couldn't even believe that it was being shown and that anyone was interested in it. And we had no idea. And I remember we all, uh, Charlie and Eden and Brad and me and Heather, um, took the first meeting with the Fox Searchlight people being like, guys, just like play it cool. You know, if they say they want to change everything, just like, just take a breath and we'll, we'll all have a conversation later, you know, whatever. And and I remember Peter Rice, who was the head at the time, um, you know, we were, I think one of us lobbed the question, like, do you foresee, you know, any changes, like being like, oh, you know, kind of bracing ourselves. And I remember Peter Rice and his great British accent. He was like, We'd like to release the film literally as is. And we were like, literally as is? What? Like, I'm sorry, you know, that's funny. I thought you, it must be yeah. the accent. <laughs> right, we, we were like, no, no, no. Are we in like Alice in Wonderland? Like it was just such a wow. such a crazy moment. And so we, um, that was sort of what started the, the process. And then, you know, we went on this uh, 12 city tour, me and Heather, we debuted at um, Toronto Film Festival. And I'm sure um, if anyone has, read any of the articles about that experience for us we debuted on September 10th it was the most dreamy magical night of our lives and then we woke up to the world collapsing and it was so devastating and so surreal and we had you know eight skyline shots in our film and then embarked on that uh incredibly difficult decision uh you know because we were being released in March of 2002 and we ended up replacing those shots and reshooting, um, which was a very painful decision, but I think the right one uh, because it was so triggering and the other the other screenings at Toronto, people were like audibly gasping and like crying from in a rom-com. So it just, it, right. it, it, it felt course. unnecessarily yeah. harrowing and triggering for survivors and, and, um, and for everyone really. So, quick on the heels of 9-11. So that was an incredibly difficult experience. And then and then we did multi-country tours. You know, we went to a lot of different countries with it. And that was an amazing journey of just like the way they changed the name in different countries and the different poster and some of it being dubbed into different languages and all of the firsts for me. Um, you know, at that point I had done a couple of sitcoms and um kind of was getting my my bearings about you know how to act in multi-camera on a small screen and this sort of was happening uh concurrently so it, it just felt like a, a different world and I was suddenly living in LA and I mean everything about it was 
such a different life. And, um, you know, you never know, I guess, what's around the corner. But to get back to your original point, I do think, and my whole career has borne this out, that when things are small and done from the heart and done in community where nobody makes any money, there's no star system, there's no like somebody's getting paid most of the budget and everyone else is like, you know, <laughs> just lucky to be there. None of yeah. that. Like it was yeah. so egalitarian and everyone was equally important. And that's how we raised the money. That's how we handled every aspect of it. And I feel when things are small and pure, that's sort of the most been the most creatively satisfying experiences in my career. And I feel like they've been the most um, successful creatively, oddly for me. I've never, I've never yet <laughs> had an experience where like the big, money gig or the big, you know, box office thing has been, um, has dovetailed with creative fulfillment or success for me. I haven't had that, that particular experience, which many people have. I just haven't had it. (laughs) I've had the experience where like the small theater things or, um, you know, obviously Broadway is, is a, a big theater thing, but, you know, compared to like a huge budget movie or, or a huge runaway hit on, on television, it, it still feels relatively pure to me or more pure, I would say, than, you know, the big, the big world in Hollywood where the stakes are so high financially and stuff like that. Um, so that's been my journey. Well, I want to talk about that because you know, anyone who knows you, and it has even been said in this interview thus far, that theater, you know, when you think about why I was thinking when you thought I never even considered film and television, obviously we consumed it. We grew up at a certain time and we sat in front of the television a lot. It was our babysitter. Um, But I feel like, you know, anyone who, who knows you and anyone who is a fan understands that you also love to sing and are an incredible singer and so of course at the time you're not thinking like I'm gonna sing on television right like Glee is the thing yet like there's a place for that skill set and love and passion not that you didn't love to do plays but musicals were just something that really filled your heart in in this very special way which leads me to want to talk about on the heels of this Kissing Jessica Stein success, by the way, was it always called Kissing Jessica Stein or did the title ever change? It did change. In fact, um, we had we had a couple of different titles. One of them was called Seeking Same, which is a terrible title. I'm so glad we didn't go with that. But like we Mary were- Craigslist. The play was called Lipstick, the story of two women seeking the perfect shade because there was that whole thing about the blending of the lipsticks and the blending of- people into making that perfect person for you um so we really couldn't come up with a great title and I feel like we kept brainstorming you know Eden and Charlie and Heather myself and Brad and Eduardo was involved at the time um and Doug Lyman got on board as well as um one of the producers and so we we really um we really went around the bend and I feel like I feel like kissing Jessica Stein was Charlie's idea. I can't remember, but it it definitely came up and 
And if it wasn't his idea, he was the one who was like, that's it. Like it was one or one of the two yeah, things. Yeah. And, um, and I feel like that stuck. And, um, so yeah, so that, that was, um, okay. I just yeah. always, I mean, names, children, films, plays, books, it, titles yeah. are really hard yeah, and it ended up so to hard. really be the best title. And also I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong and you can describe it because it's your life, mm. but I feel like in some way that may have helped uh, your Broadway debut happened. Absolutely. Directly or indirectly. So I wanted to know about that because we have to talk about Wonderful Town. You're so sweet. Um, well, you know, what's funny is that I always wanted to be on Broadway and I couldn't get there yet. And, um, and then going, taking the weird trip to LA that led to the sitcom that led to the movie. I mean, it's just the play that led to the movie, um, got me back to Broadway. And, And that is such an interesting, kind of odd journey right I mean it's sort of like what (laughs) how did that happen especially then like like at the time you were either there wasn't this back and forth between television and film people and Broadway right like it was very separate yeah as I recall and I remember too like having these big fancy amazing agents in LA they didn't even know about the theater side of me um and that was my main thing you know doing all of the Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe, you know, Sopranos and playing Sarah Brown like three times and, you know, doing Chekhov and all sorts of things that I loved to do. Um, And I'll never forget. And you and I actually, we were having lunch. Remember the day I got the job um, in Wonderful Town. Um, So at that place that used to be so great that closed at Amsterdam 74th with the really healthy food, Josie's. Josie's was so delish what happened um um yes it came and went but anyway I'll I'll never forget I was in New York for a a cousin's wedding and I got a call from my junior agent at the time who had just been promoted I think he used to be uh, my agent's assistant and then he became a junior agent and I the call went like this he said you've been on stage before right and I was like first I was like what who is this like and um that was how little they knew about like whether I could sing or if I was right for the part or if anything. And I think I just happened to be lucky um, that they had seen a lot of people for the role because Laura Benanti, who had done it at City Center, I'm sure brilliantly, I didn't get to see it. Um, I think she was already starring in something else that that conflicted. But this was the minute that they had a theater and Donna available available so they you know they were struggling I think to match up Donna and find someone um after Laura who they loved and all of that jazz so I um I went in and and Donna and I had great chemistry and I had a call back the next day and got it and that was it and and it was so so fast it was such a fast um process and and it was not a show I knew like I it was not a show I had done which you know at that point I had done like you know most of the musical theater ingenues and sopranos um, in that kind of legit canon you know and that was not not one of them so um it the whole thing was uh so fast and I do think it was Jessica Stein that had them even consider me or or think that I was worthy enough to kind of 
you know, star opposite Donna, um, obviously she was the star, star, star. It was her name above the title. Um, but oddly, that musical, the second lead is really Eileen, the sister. It's an odd show where the second lead is, you know, it's about the two women more than it is about the um, romance. The love interest. Right. Yeah, it's like, it's kind of a, like, it's kind of an odd, um, you know, I loved it like that. It was about the two sisters. And for me, um, the luck of that and to meet some friends for life um, in that process and Donna um, being like my sister for life. Um, it was so amazing. And then the meta aspect of the fact that my elder sister was a journalist and we grew up in a small town and both of us moved to New York City to respectively make it as a writer and an actress and that this was happening. It was such a give you chills kind of a, a moment like that kind of kismet so rarely happens and um you know it was a really magical job in in every way possible and including I mean so Kathleen Marshall was the director she was magnificent and, and again just like the greatest people the the cast I loved every single person and that cast and that creative team it was it was incredible that you know Betty Comden was there for every for our first read through for our every preview I mean she she was um and she would tear up because she had just lost um her partner Adolph Green you know um recently and so she would she would be so moved by the work and looking at like the costumes and hearing the music and hearing the the um the score and the lines and the whole of it. And she would always tear up and just say how much it made her miss her partner, you know, and our most magnificent um, opening night gift I've ever gotten was, um, it was a framed picture of Leonard Bernstein and Comden and Green all laughing on a couch while they were writing Wonderful Town and it was engraved and it was just like the, the best present ever and, and such a moment in time to feel like you were part of those three geniuses, like, you know, and to be Incredible. the first, yeah. first revival, you know, 50 years later, which is what it was. It was a really meaningful, um, just really meaningful project for me. And I'll never forget it. It was such a like lifelong dream. And I've not been back on Broadway since. I'd love to be, but you know, that if I never did anything else again, that was a pretty magnificent one to have done, you know? And then you're nominated for a Tony. So I feel like, you know, it is a, I was talking to Andrea Martin and, and her first Broadway show, my favorite year, um, she was nominated she was in her mid-40s at the time and she was like mm -hmm. a lot I didn't like I have to come back again the show would close I go back to New York and I mm -hmm. buy a dress and there's a whole <laughs> what you know like she's just yeah. adorable and and there's something about you know the idea of doing your first show and then not only having the absolute glorious feeling that like the dream has been reached and and doesn't disappoint right like oh yeah it is, it is worth all the work but then you get nominated so do you can you talk about I mean it's not yesterday but I feel like there are certain moments in our lives that probably can remain fresh if we if we yeah. ask ourselves like so Tony season is happening you were obviously and many people say this like I'm winning a, other awards and I'm getting a kind of sense that it's working what I'm doing um but tell me about theater I mean, Tony I nominating morning I, well, the morning I, I, 
got called by Pete Sanders, who was the show's um, PR person for the show, because I never knew from, I never, I didn't have a publicist um, right. of my own. And um, he called and he's like, I guess you're going to need to get a dress. And I, <laughs> and that's all he said. And I was like, really? Like, you know, I was very surprised. So you were and, not watching them on television. No, no. Um, and I was surprised because, um, you know, we, we got nice reviews and I, people seem to be really loving the show, but you know, I was a newbie, you know, who was I? Like, no, you were like Donna. Sure. The I show. Mean, Donna sure. Murphy should win yeah. every award that's ever, they should invent new awards for her yes. to win. Like, honestly, yeah. there aren't enough accolades like on God's green earth for that woman's talent. But you know, I was just nobody. Like I was, you know what I mean? Like I, well, you was were really on, happy to be there. I was very happy to be yes. there. And, and, you know, I remember, um, just feeling unbelievably lucky, you know, um, because it was also like, it's an ingenue part. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it, it, it's, um, it wasn't like this, this, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not a slam dunk to be recognized in that way, um, to be in support of really a show-stopping tour de force of a performance. I'll yeah. never forget witnessing Donna, like in the early days of rehearsals being like, oh my God, this woman. She like is, as she built that number, as she I mean, built, all the numbers, but specifically. Yes, yeah. I mean, as she built that character, I mean, God, like Conga and, um, you know, uh, Hunter Race Lose Man, like to, to watch her at work, like it was just like, a masterclass, you know? And so to even just be in the company of that, it just felt like pinch me, please, <laughs> you know? So to get that, um, honor felt really, um, it just felt like gravy and cherry on top of the Sunday. And also like, I better be present for every second of this. Cause you know, um, this is a once in a lifetime, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, no matter what you go on to do, right. Like to work with a hero, and find out that hero is as nice as they are talented. Like that's oh, a really incredible and, and, thing. And a lifelong friend, you yeah. know, and that yeah. is, um, and a few lifelong friends, you know, Kenny Barnett and uh, Michael McGraw and all, you know, all of these people who came into my life through that show who I just love and adore, you know. Was that a show that had a lot of people you admire come see it and come backstage? Yes. Are there memorable? I'd never had that experience either. Like where you'd, open up your mail at the theater and you know there was a letter from Hal Prince and there was a letter from um Senator Kennedy and there was a letter from Harrison Keeler and there was a letter you know there there were there were surprises like that where you kind of you know um Joanne Woodward came and you know people who you just um admired so much um and the fact that they enjoyed your work you know obviously with Donna Murphy in a show, you 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 are pretty much assured that some heavy hitters from Broadway are going to come. You know what I mean? Which Hello, Mister Sondheim. Yes, I mean I'm very right. Pleased, very pleased to meet you. Wait, can I just ask you to tell a hilarious story? And if it was going to be your little known fact, which I have no idea what your little known fact is. Okay, but but one of the funniest things you ever told me is that early on, you know, 
I feel like there are many listeners who know what the Fantastics is, <laughs> was. And then there are some people, if you don't know what it is, just look it up because it doesn't matter. But it was like one of the longest running shows that I think closed yesterday after 300 yeah. years. It closed um, while we were doing this interview. Okay, okay, <laughs> no, right kidding. now. Oh, look, it just closed. Um, <laughs> and then opened again someplace else. But basically like many people kind of came through at the beginning of their career and got to be a part of this little magical musical, including you as an understudy. And can you explain why you decided to stay an understudy rather yes, than taking on the principal role? So funny, because I was thinking that that might be a little known fact. So I'll uh, have to think of it. All right. Well, you'll say it twice. You'll say no, it twice. No, I won't say it twice. It's okay. No, it was hilarious because I was working at Sarah Beth's on um, Amsterdam at the time as a hostess. And so I worked like four nights a week or something. And I got the understudy gig, which is just a standby for the girl. Cause it's, you know, it's the only girl it's the character is called the girl. Um, and anyway, I got to go on quite often because there were just different, you know, weekends and conflicts and things and not quite often but often enough to feel like I'm playing this part you know and I'm loving when I get to do it and sometimes I even have noticed because sometimes if she had a conflict she would let me know she was going to a wedding or whatever it, things came up and so I had played the role maybe a dozen times you know um and it was always fun because if I was on for the weekend then my people could come and I would get the shifts off from the restaurant and um a couple of different times when the girl playing the girl was moving on to some other job um they would say we'd like you to step in and take over the role and I couldn't and didn't because I couldn't afford to because I had my restaurant job which I was still doing like four nights a week and I had my job at the gym where I was a bad salesperson of memberships. And then in addition to that, the understudy job got paid $65 extra per week. Um, so that took you over the top. Like normally it was like $365 a week or $375 a week. And this took you to like $425 a week or something, um, or maybe $440, something like that a week. Um, and to get the extra $65 a week, the understudy would, I would cut all of the colored paper squares in the big paper cutter. Because if anyone who saw the Fantastics remembers, there are these moments when like El Gallo throws the uh, red confetti paper squares uh, red to me symbolize blood. And there are these colored ones that, um, you know, red and uh, yellow and pink and blue. They're like confetti. They're, they're these little tissue paper and I would just make the stacks of them and cut them up into the little cubes and I would get an extra 65 bucks a week. How hilarious that someone on the producing side of the longest running musical in New York history was like, I know what we'll do. Whoever's the understudy, they will be responsible for the paper cut or <laughs> Like yeah, random, it, like of it, all it the felt, things. It I felt love it. perfect. It was just like, yeah, I mean, it was such a, like that play, I mean, that show was so special. It was so magical and I loved it so much. I loved the part so much. I loved that little tiny theater so much. I loved cutting the tissue paper. I loved all of it. <laughs> um, and, and it's funny, I wish I could have played the part, you know, full time, but also it was a really hard sing and I needed to make enough money to pay my rent. And it, I still and all got to play it a bunch of times. And so it sounds like you made the right decision. 
I don't know about that, but um, I have to, you know, I have to talk about this play I saw you in last night because it was really, you know, over the years, I got to see you in Finks. I got to see you in Explorers Club at Manhattan Theater Club. I got to see you and Linda Lavin be this incredible mother-daughter duo. Um, what, I'm spacing out on the name of that play. Too Much Nikki's, Son. Too, too Much, much Son. son. Nikki's incredible play, yeah. Nikki Silver play. And so it was really fascinating to see you in this play last night where for the first time ever, um, you're in a mother-daughter scenario and you're the mother. And it is a play called The Get. And for those of you who don't know, The Get is the official divorce document if you get a religious divorce in the Jewish tradition. Um, and I just feel like I told you this at dinner last night, like it was so incredible. Oh, that's Lola in the background. Hi, Lola. Um, it was so <laughs> incredible to see you in some way, like be completely yourself, the daughter I know you to be, um, and then take on a little bit of these other women who I've seen play your mother and sort of channel all of these incredible performers and performances and mix it all up into making something completely uniquely your own. And I guess if you could just talk a little bit about what it was about this script, because you get a lot of offers, like what was it about this play that you thought, you know what, I, this is really interesting to me. I'd like to work on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, um, if there's any thread to my career or whatever, I've tried very hard to focus on female driven stories and female creators and create, write and create roles for women of all ages. And, um, you know, this is written by and starring a really young, brilliant, uh, writer, actress, creator named Liba Weinberg. And so to read something that I thought had such an authentic and original voice and such a freshness to it um, and, and such originality, uh, I was so intrigued by the writing and I was, I was on deadline at the time for this um, a film script that I wrote that is being shot right now. And I didn't even have time to read the whole play when they said, this was sent your way. And I was like, uh, I'm on deadline. I'm working 13 hours a day. And I was like, I got through the first 30 pages. The writing is so good and so intriguing. Um, but I have to go back to work now. You know what I mean? And um, on the script, because I was just like burning the candle. And so I got an extension to like finish the <laughs> script. And um, I just thought, um, how interesting that this uh, young, brilliant, writer actress is examining these issues of sort of Jewish identity and whatever it means to be in this modern world we're in, but also have a sense of tradition or spirituality or some tie to your Judaism, even if you don't quite understand it or um, don't quite know how to talk about it even or categorize it or whether it's cultural or whether it's truly, you know, um, religious or whether you're reformed or conservative or progressive or whether you believe that we should only marry and date within our faith or if, or if we think I have to figure out my own version of what's right in my world and you know I think she has a lot of big ideas on her mind um, and I feel I think complexity around my own identity as a Jewish person my mother is Jewish and my mother's side of the family is extremely Jewish in many ways. I have rabbis and cantors and Judaic scholars and professors of Judaic studies in uh, my mom's side of the family. 
And, you know, my grandfather on my mom's side, his whole family escaped the Nazis, you know, not a lot of them did not escape, but, you know, I've got a lot of um, deep roots in that way. And it felt like a really, and then I should say the other uh, draw or irony was that this mom is a very loving, possibly over overly loving uh, Jewish mother who's also a therapist. So there's a quality about um, physician heal thyself a little bit because she has not fully individuated from her um, adult daughter. And my mother is a very loving, sometimes overly loving Jewish mother therapist. <laughs> so in some ways I was like, oh my gosh, um, am I playing a version of my mother here if I were to do this play? And would that be an interesting journey to be on? Um, and also, it just feels interesting to examine, especially at this moment, this unfortunate zeitgeisty moment, I would say, with this rise of anti-Semitism and um, everything that's happening right now to make this play even more more topical than it should be, um, not unlike a parade that Ben just did. And, you know, it, it feels... Um, it feels like an interesting time and moment to question what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be a feminist and a Jew? What does it mean to be um, a young woman or a woman of an, another age and generation? I'm questioning Jewish identity, identity as um, a woman, a wife, a mother, a mate, all of these different sort of um, identities and how do we uh, make sense of it and make sense of the journey and, you know, it was interesting to me in, they had a lot of rabbis sort of as part of this um, uh, development process. Uh, Rabbi Matt Green was someone who worked extensively with Liba and with Daniela Topol, the director on um, on developing the, the piece and workshopping it and whatnot. And we had a, a couple of other rabbis speak with us and the get that sort of arcane, quite patriarchal um, ritual it's sort of one of the only rituals sort of left in Judaism that a progressive form of Judaism hasn't like questioned and re like kind of um, recreated. It's still in all this thing where only the man, the husband can request it. And so that's an interesting thing too. Like maybe, maybe progressive Jewish leaders who are changing all the rules and finding a way to reinterpret text and redefine um, Judaism in a, in a more modern, progressive, inclusive way. Maybe this will be the next uh, thing that might get looked at because it, it definitely feels stuck in uh, a much more antiquated past than it does in the more progressive um, future that many synagogues and many um, many versions of Judaism have started to redefine and, and um, recreate, you know? Well, I thought, you know, aside from asking a lot of really interesting questions, there's sort of a magical realism element to this play. It's really funny, along with being really um, provocative. And to get to see you do the thing that you love so much and find a way to inhabit a character that could be um, a stereotype of some kind and to deny that um, as an artist, there's nothing stereotypical about it. Um, but, you know, there's a light from within that happens when you are performing on stage that is really, um, I don't know, you just feel lucky to be in the audience to bear witness to this really pure 
beautiful artistic expression of a part of yourself that I haven't gotten to see before. And, and there's, there's, you you know, there's always you in it, but I just was like, oh, I love getting to see this moment and this, um, yeah, like just this incredible curiosity that you bring to the things that you do. So Jen Westfeld, this has been, I mean, we've scratched the surface, so you'll have to come (laughs) back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, I do want to ask, I feel awful because I had a suspicion as I was asking you about it. I was like, if I were Jen, my little known fact would be cutting up paper for the Fantastics. um, (laughs) Any pause that there might be in, in response to my asking you for a little known fact, I can remove from the episode when it airs, but have you been able to think of another one? I'm being greedy. Here's another little known fact. That's not really about me as much as it is about you and me, which is that you, Alana Levine are one of three actors um, and well, and me, I guess four actors, <laughs> um, who appeared in all of my films. And, uh, each of those experiences remain, um, the happiest film experiences I've had, especially because in the last one, friends with kids, uh, my, my two co-stars in the scene are the incredible Brian Darcy James Greatest. and my daughter, my daughter, Georgia Famusa. And so for us to have the, a moment like, of celluloid. Yes. Who's my would-be daughter. Who's almost like my daughter. He's yes. like my goddaughter. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, sure. Megan Fox was there too. And, <laughs> and Adam Scott, sure. They were there. Sure. Maybe they said sure. a few things. Thank you for that. Like, thank you for giving us that moment to have forever and to look back at that time and freeze it. Like that is who we were, what we look like. Um, and to be married for, you know, for that time to Brian Darcy James was pure joy. So <laughs> thank you for all of it. Thank you for all of it. I love you, Jen Westfeld. Thank oh, you for being honey, on the podcast. I love you. I'm- One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.